Uh, Councillor McKenney, please. So I guess the, the word of the evening is in the day or the last two days really is scapegoat. And what we've scapegoated now is the first black police chief in the city of Ottawa, only the second woman to uh, ever chair police services board. And I believe the first one, Marion Dewar, was also tossed from chair as police services board. So we have a long history of misogyny, city of Ottawa, and racism. And now what we have is our colleague, Councillor King, who has resigned. And all the mayor could say is thank you and move on. It's, I mean, the gross negligence of what has happened in this city, the, the negligence That has put people's lives at risk, and especially this coming weekend and moving forward, because there is no clear plan anymore. I think it's shocking that, you know, anyone would suggest we need a few days or a week to, you know, pull ourselves together. You obviously have not been down there. You obviously did not live down in Centertown. This, there, the, 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 the negligence goes far behind any like it's us as a city council police services board perhaps federal government huge provincial government huge we all share in it we all share in it but what's happening tonight this motion that we are debating tonight is political it is a power grab by this mayor because why else why else would we be appointing councilor Eli Elshantiri, who I'll remind you, went to the wedding of a former chief of police at one point. A little conflict of interest there, but we're not going to Google that tonight, are we? And Councillor Harder, who we had to let go from planning committee and all of our other committees because our integrity commissioner found her negligent of the code of conflict. What is the matter with us? Why, if this is not a political move, then why not an urban councillor? This is happening in our downtown. This is happening, not in your wards, uh-uh, in mine and Matt Fleury's and some of the other urban councillors are, are feeling some of the effects, but it is happening to my residents. So if this is not a power grab, then why not an urban councillor? Why another rural and suburban councillor? And I'll tell you this, in the middle of a crisis, here we are Wednesday night at 7.30. You don't care. You do not care, Mayor, because this meeting would have happened Monday so that we could get answers in time for people to know what they need to do to prepare for the weekend. Because every weekend gets more and more dangerous for people who live on Lisburn and Metcalf and Cooper and Queen and Bay. Every hour matters, but here we are Wednesday night because you wanted to see if your failed attempt to deal with illegal occupiers was going to work. Well, it didn't work, and it was illegal, and now they're like stuck up on Wellington. 
we had a 21 year old who knows more than we do went out and got an injunction against horns. Honestly, you know, this is a, I can't even like begin. I can't even begin to look at where we have failed one residential neighborhood, public health. When the floods happened, when the tornado happened, they went out respite centers they went out wellness checks i'll finish i will finish you'll cut off my mic but i will finish wellness checks respite centers nothing has happened here i have not had a phone call from the chair of the board of health medical officer of health the city manager the general manager of emergency protective services the mayor was only like shamed into meeting with me once and Councillor Flurry. Not one phone call from any of you. You do not care about the residents of the downtown. Don't call me and don't send me messages anymore asking if you can come and help me to respond to emails. It's not what I need. I need stability in this city today. I need it to be stable. And getting rid of half of the board of the police services is not stability. It is not what we need today. There will be time. There will be a postmortem, and we'll all answer to it. There will be an inquiry, and we'll all answer to it. Did we ask? And I will too. I will too. Did I ask the right questions? Did I do enough for the people who elected me to keep them safe? We will all ask for that. We will all answer to that. But now, this, this is because you don't actually care if you cared about the people living on kent street if you cared about the people living on bay living on lion living on queen we would not be having this conversation tonight instead at 7 32 now we would be asking our police we would be asking our emergency response we would be asking our city manager and our mayor, what is the plan for the weekend? What is the plan so that more people don't come back into this city and that it doesn't cause the mayhem and chaos and harassment and violence that the last two weekends have caused? You don't actually care or we would not be having this conversation right now. Councillor King, I am sorry. I am sorry that you were dismissed. And Mayor Watson, I have lost all confidence in you as a mayor of the city of Ottawa. Thank you. Uh, Councillor Meehan, please. Welcome to the Fulcrum Radio Show. I'm your host, Damian Piper. The Fulcrum is the University of Ottawa's legendary English newspaper, produced on the University of Ottawa campus in downtown Ottawa, the capital city of the north on the Great Turtle Island. That was Councillor Catherine McKenney you heard in the cold open from Thursday's city council meeting. And that was the mayor, Jim Watson, you heard, who said thank you. 
Councillor McKenney represents the Somerset Ward in downtown Ottawa. That is exactly where all of these occupiers have taken over the capital city for the last few weeks, and Catherine makes the point we're about to head into the fourth weekend of this occupancy, and the city still has presented no plan in how we will navigate our way through the weekend. This week, the city of Ottawa's police chief, Peter Slowly, resigned. The mayor, Jim Watson, ousted city councillors Diane Deans, Ralston King, Carol Ann Meehan, and Sandy Smallwood from the Police Services Board Committee. The councillors were ousted over the selection process for a new interim chief. A decision was made from the police board to hire former Waterloo Police Chief Matthew Terrigian. Terrigian was a police chief for 27 years. The mayor and his supporters on council say that it undermines the service since Terrigian isn't local and that he doesn't know Ottawa. Of course, that was the point. Yes, Terrigian was an outsider, but it's not clear that anyone within the Ottawa Police Services organization or the city itself has a plan to see us out of the current crisis. Terrigian was also chosen because he was a former Deputy Solicitor General for the province of Ontario, a highly respected nonpartisan public service role. And he is a fellow from the Monk School of Global Affairs and Public Policy working in the Global Justice Lab at the University of Toronto. Now, the Police Services Board Council members have been replaced with members whose views align more closely with the mayor, including Councillor Eliel Shantiri, who Catherine McKinney pointed out in the cold open, may have a conflict of interest having publicly attended the wedding of a previous police chief, and Councillor Jan Harder from Barhaven is now on the Police Services Board Committee. You may remember Jan Harder had to step down from her position as chair of the committee responsible for planning and development for the City of Ottawa when the Integrity Commissioner's report pointed a damning finger at Harder's violations of the councillor's code of conduct when she hired Jack Sterling and his daughter to work for her in her office. Sterling was a registered lobbyist and was actively representing clients who had projects being decided on by the planning committee that Jan Harder was chairing. And now, just a few months later, that counselor, Jan Harder, is now on the police services board during one of the most tumultuous times in the city's history. So that's what that was all about. But it's not the only thing that's happening in the city of Ottawa, and that brings us to today's show. We have a feature interview with Terry Chilibeck, a retired helicopter pilot and former helipad inspector with the Ministry of Transportation. Terry is bringing to light issues around the design with the current Civic Hospital proposal that relate to its helicopter pad. The Civic Hospital, set to be built on the Central Experimental Farm, is near a busy urban area around the city's urban core, where one of the city's biggest towers, at the corner of Preston and Carling, has just gone up. Terry makes the case that if the city, 
and its developers want to continue to develop towers along Carling and Bronson, there will be continuously changing wind patterns, which may make landing a medical evac chopper not only harder, but more dangerous. And Emma Williams is in conversation with Matthew Pimenter, a researcher from the University of Ottawa who has been studying the hypoxic environments of naked mole rats. Pimenter's research sheds lights on how the species uses thermogenesis to stay warm in their naturally cool environments. But first, it's time for headlines. Today reading headlines, we have Fulcrum staff writers, Gabrielle Musichka and Shaley Shaw. Welcome to the broadcast. There's a tapestry at the Royal Museum Greenwich that is in need of restoration. The masterpiece depicts a 17th century naval battle, the burning of the Royal James at the Battle of Sol Bay of May 28, 1672, which began the Third Anglo-Dutch War. With 15,000 pounds more in public funds, the delicate restoration would begin. The silk has aged and gotten more fragile, and the vibrancy of the colors have faded over the years due to light damage. Last year, the conservation began as the art piece was sent to Belgium for cleaning purposes. The conservators in the UK are now working on it with hopes to have it hung at the Royal Museum Greenwich next year. The masterpiece, commissioned by Charles II, has not been displayed to the public in 22 years. The tapestry restoration has taken 350 hours of work to date and will, in total cost, £194,000. The 24-square-meter tapestry requires very delicate and careful repairs to be brought back to life. A shark killed a swimmer off a Sydney beach on Wednesday in the city's first fatal attack since 1963. A NSW ambulance spokeswoman said paramedics were called to Little Bay. Unfortunately, this patient had suffered catastrophic injuries and there was nothing paramedics could do, she said. The new South Wales state government has spent millions of dollars on technology in an attempt to reduce shark attacks along its coast amid public concern. Deploying nets at 51 beaches, as well as drones and shark listening stations that can track white sharks by satellite and send an alert when one is sighted. Despite this new technology, a swimmer was still killed. The Kids Online Safety Act was introduced by two senators, one Republican and one Democrat. The bill is aimed at keeping kids safe online. The argument is that social media platforms themselves don't do enough to protect their young users. This is a new bipartisan issue that most agree on. The law would force social media apps to have stricter rules for its users under 16 years old. The tools included in these provisions protect against stalking, exploitation, addiction, and protects youth from dangerous material. The senators state that this act would provide both parents and children with tools to ensure safety of minors. Additionally, this law would give social media companies a duty to protect young people on their platforms. A young girl missing since July 2019 was found alive on Monday. Police said in a small, cold, and wet room under a staircase in a house three hours from where she went missing. Paisley Schultes was located in a home in the town of Sodrates in the Hudson River Valley after a police search on Monday, authorities said. Paisley, who was four years old when she went missing, was found in good health. She is now back in the custody of her legal guardian and reunited with her older sister, the police said. On Monday, after receiving a tip that the child might be held at a hidden location in Sodrates, police obtained a search warrant for the home. 
her non-custodial parents, Kimberly Cooper, 33, and Kirk Shurtis, Jr., 32, have been charged with custodial interference and endangering the welfare of a child. 15-year-old Russian figure skater Kamila Valieva performed in the qualifiers after testing positive for trimetazidine. The drug is used for angina treatment. Valieva is arguing that there was a contamination with her grandfather's medicine, which caused her positive test. Even if Valieva wins at the final, medals will only be handed out after the IOC has investigated the positive test further. While many are sympathetic to the young girl, most are still frustrated that she is allowed to compete. They argue that nobody with a positive test has ever been allowed to compete. Highlighting the Shikari Richardson case during the Summer Olympics, Richardson had tested positive for marijuana and was barred from competing in her races. Despite competing for the gold medal Thursday, February 17th, Valieva might never get a medal. NASA's new X-ray Space Telescope captured its first image, and it shows the vibrant electromagnetic afterglow of a supernova explosion. The Imaging X-ray Polarimetry Explorer, IXPE, is set to study extreme space objects like black holes. The first image was released on Monday. The gas cloud is about 10 light years wide. In visible light, it doesn't actually glow the stunning purple color, but this is the color that NASA researchers chose to represent how powerful the X-ray light is in different parts of the cloud. IXPE is set to spend at least two years studying the most extreme and mysterious objects in the universe, nebulae, supernovas, neutron stars, and black holes. It is NASA's first major X-ray space telescope since the Chandra X-ray Observatory launched into orbit in 1999. That telescope's first image also captured Cassiopeia A. New Zealand has passed a bill banning all forms of conversion therapy, adding themselves to the list of approximately 15 countries where there are national bans on these practices. This bill was introduced into session last summer and has provisions that seek to prevent and recognize harm caused by conversion therapy practices, as well as promote respectful and open discussions around gender and sexuality. The legislation makes the performance of conversion therapy a civil offense that would result in prison time. New Human Rights Commission services for support purposes will be available this spring, and the criminal offenses will take effect immediately. Conversion therapy, which seeks to suppress and change someone's sexual orientation, gender identity, or expression, has been classified as dangerous and hateful. This past December, Canada banned all practices of conversion therapy after two other attempts to do so. This legislation came into effect on January 7th and was passed unanimously. The Canadian legislation makes all attempts of conversion therapy consented to or not criminal offenses. Terry Chilibeck first began his career as a helicopter pilot when he served in the armed forces. After leaving the service, he went on to use his expertise with the Ministry of Transportation, working as a helipad inspector across the country. Terry has been trying to bring to light issues surrounding the design of the new helicopter pad on the Civic Hospital. He is trying to bring serious safety concerns to light, concerns which up until this point have mostly fallen on deaf ears. Terry makes the case that while a new hospital may be necessary, the current location and plans to develop high-rise residential towers around the proposed site will only continue to create dangerous flight pathways when it comes time to land. Joining me now is Mr. Terry Chilibeck. Terry, thank you for taking the time to speak with me today. Okay. Could you please tell me a little bit about yourself? Okay. I'm a 
I'm a citizen of the city of Ottawa, and I'm living in the Glebe. And I recently became aware of the hospital. Well, actually, we knew about it when it first was announced. But uh, then when the design came out about uh, six, eight months ago, and there was initial uh, graphics, then I started reading the information and realized that the helicopter side of it was apparently missing. And, uh, and then I looked through it, and I found one reference to helicopters, and it was the word helipad. And then I found one image with a helipad on a roof. And that was it. And so I wrote up a paper that described my concerns because I am a helicopter pilot. I uh, retired as a inspector in uh, the uh, Transport Canada. And before uh, starting off with my career, I um, became a helicopter pilot in 1982 with the Air Force. I flew with them for 10 years. And then I went to an airline for five years in Vancouver. And then the Coast Guard, uh, back with Transport Canada, who ran the Coast Guard uh, machines and pilots in uh, Prince Rupert, British Columbia. Then I moved to Ottawa training Coast Guard and also safety inspectors for Transport Canada. And then ended up my career for the last uh, 15 20 years, was with the licensing of pilots for Transport Canada. So I uh, ended up being the program manager for licensing. So uh. that's my background. And then I looked at uh, what they've got planned and I went, oh my God, um, has anyone looked at this? So I sent a letter to the different councillors and I got the, it was received. It was also my MPP I sent it to. And it was received, but uh, never heard anything back. So now I'm a little bit concerned that it, you know, might have been one of those things that just got overlooked because it still doesn't seem to be addressed or mentioned anywhere. Okay, so let's go back to this helicopter pad in the current design proposal. What are your concerns with it? Okay, um, the helicopter flying a medevac helicopter or any type of helicopter onto a, a restricted area like a helipad versus a, a, a runway or a large apron in an a, uh, airport. Uh, when you've got a limited uh, surface to, to land on, there's certain uh, design per- parameters that have to be considered when you uh, do that, design it, that is. And uh, there's also consideration about what uh, obstacles are nearby and the type of aircraft we call helicopters aircraft versus airplanes. That's the other type of aircraft. So the helicopter, uh, the actual size and, and the ability of the actual helicopter that you're designing the pad for, or a series of helicopter category of helicopter that you're designing it for. So um, these all started to make me think that this is a terrible place to be putting an elevated helipad. So yeah, just explain a little bit about the helicopter limitations and demands when it comes to keeping it as safe as you can. Inherently, they're very safe. Even when they have an accident, quite often you don't find people having a serious injury. Uh, that's more rare than just minor injuries with a helicopter because we have accidents and usually in a uh, situation where you lose an engine, the engine fails on you, and you uh, land, uh, 
with almost no forward speed. And the forward speed is what usually rolls aircraft up and it causes uh, all sorts of injuries, the forward speed being the, uh, the one that's causing all those injuries for people. And helicopters can quite often land in a hovering type of situation. Even in, with no engine, you can land it quite safely. And if it's on a, uh, if it isn't done quite safely, the design of the uh, cockpit and the crew cabin is such that it it takes the impact and allows the impact to be distributed outside of the people inside. Um, so it it crushes and it rolls, and rolling is more common than anything. So if there is some forward speed, you roll, and uh, then um, you can climb out most more often than not. So that being said, when you fly a helicopter into a helipad, we're talking a restricted helipad in terms of size, then the last couple of hundred feet, it gets uh, more and more demanding of the helicopter engines and power requirements on the, on, as you come into the uh, hover to land. So that last hundred feet is very critical. And then the last, the first hundred feet is very critical. So a land-based helipad has the advantage that if you have an emergency on the way in, there's usually an undershoot. That's before you reach the helipad. There's areas that you can actually put your landing gear on and roll onto the helipad if you have forward motion. Or if you land on the helipad and still have forward motion and you can't stop because you have an emergency of some sort, then you have an overshoot, which is an area that allows you to roll past the helipad, say it's a paved helipad, onto the grass. And a good example of that is the one up at the airport, the, uh, at the hospital, I should say, now on Carling, is that uh, there's areas on, on three sides that the helicopter can actually roll onto if there's any type of emergency that they will be able to stop in time to stay on the pad. And when you put an elevated helipad on a roof, you can imagine that you don't have that. So there's no undershoot, there's no overshoot, there is only that pad. And if you have the emergency early enough, you can turn and fly away because the other engine typically will be able to power you for that. And if you have an emergency right after takeoff, you do a certain type of takeoff where you climb up and then descend, drop the nose and get your speed for fly away on one engine right away. But there's a critical point in both of those that exists for elevated helipads that make them more dangerous than a ground-based helipad. So the fact that we're designing a building with an elevated helipad right off the bat, when there is choices, when you make your location choice, there's choices elsewhere that would allow you to have a ground-based helipad. Like you look at cities that have helipads on the hospitals now, they've been added to a hospital. They haven't been designed into the new hospital, typically. And I'm not an expert on helipad design. Those they are, There are experts in Transport Canada that do it full-time. But I'm talking about it from my basic knowledge, using them on a day-to-day -day basis and knowing that they do have detailed descriptions on how they should be built safely. So that's... That's the elevated helipad concern of mine, is that we've designed it into uh, an elevated helipad. If there is something that's very serious, 
and it happens right at a critical point, then it could end up having a an accident on the helipad on the roof of a hospital or in the parking lot right below after the roof or before the roof. Typically, that's you know where an elevated helipad will have you know accidents that don't stay contained on the roof. They become off the roof down below on either side. So that's one of the and that's pretty pessimistic and pretty low chance of that happening, but that's what all the regulations and design parameters are all about is taking that chance and minimizing it down to, to as as small as you possibly can. Can you tell me about wind studies and wind spikes? Do you think that any of the current conditions were factored into how this design was chosen? Uh, no, and that's the other thing that I find funny about putting a, a helipad at Dow's Lake because having lived here for 20 years, I know that the local wind is traditionally or, or more frequent from the west coming over Dow's Lake to the Glebe. So if you're landing at Dow's Lake, let's say in that parking lot that's there now, if I was going to land there in a perfect world, if there was no humans to complain, I would fly right over the Glebe at about 300 feet in descent onto that pad in a straight line descent. And that's not safe. And the wind around tall buildings is a huge factor for safety as well, because the turbulence that uh, buildings create around these tall buildings is dramatic enough that they design downtown cores now taking wind studies in a wind tunnel with existing models of buildings and a new building put in there to see what its impact is on the the streets and amongst the buildings because it can make it a turbulent mess down on the streets where dust and debris is flying in people's faces all day long and when you've got a helicopter that's going to be operating nearby, that's another aspect of the design that I haven't seen or heard of. And I'm not sure that I've heard about Ottawa using wind wind tunnels to design or approve buildings yet. Other cities have, but I, I, I haven't heard of it. And this was definitely one that will be needed because there are planned buildings. And around Dow's Lake, I can imagine that the city wants to increase density, as they stated they do. And increasing density around a World Heritage Site has its advantages, and its its impact is minimized by it being in an area where there's good uh, transit. So along Carling and along Bronson is a prime location for high buildings. And that is going to be a problem, and also in Ottawa South. And that's going to be a problem because that's the approach path that any helicopter or medevac helicopter would be taking. Right down the canal, over Dow's Lake, into the helipad. So that's the wind aspect of it. And then we've got the bird aspect. That is another one. It's it's an attractive environment for flocks of birds, not just solitary birds, but flocks of them. And these birds, I've noticed being a resident, they're flying in at night into Dow's Lake. And I hear them every fall, every spring, 
lots of flocks of birds at night. And it's surprising because I come from the West Coast. You don't hear a lot of birds at night because it's not as well built up and uh, you don't have environments that attract them within the city in a lot of cities because uh, there's mainly the ocean and there's better places in the city for those birds there. They've got uh, wetlands and stuff outside of Vancouver that attract those birds. So these birds come in and that's a concern because birds at night and a helicopter landing are not, a, they're a terrible mix. And these are big birds. They're not small swallows. They will damage helicopters. They will damage fixed wing aircraft as well. Uh, airliners, engines, the whole thing. So that's another aspect, not even getting into the fact that there are nesting birds there and the environmental impact of helicopters flying over nesting birds where the arboretum is. It's a favorite of small songbirds and all sorts of migratory birds that and as well as a resident nesting birds that's going to be an, an impact on the actual wildlife there so that's sort of outside of you know my i mention it but i don't really um get into it too much because i was really concerned about the safety of the the helipad and uh and its location and and being elevated in around buildings in around birds, it's like the perfect storm for a terrible place to put a helipad. The density of people on the approach is a concern too, because as you know, there are uh, problems with lasers that are, pro I think the American FAA said that they'd had a doubling or tripling of laser reports by air crew. So unhappy, or perhaps uh, naive people may flash lasers at a right. helicopter flying over them. And so you're talking about somebody with a laser pointer that's just yes. out there trying yeah, to blind the pilot. They're, they're causing eye damage for some pilots because they're looking out to go to land and this laser comes in and uh, you're, you're doing it at night and the, your pupils are dilated. So uh, there's more of a, opportunity for a small laser to actually you know enter your eye so those are a couple of the things that are a safety aspect of flying over a built-up area and in, in comparison to you know i'm looking at it as over the experimental far farm or over the river going into tunney's pasture now i out of the three the least safe one is Dow's Lake. And for all these things, I think that the, you know, there's always the bird risk at every site, but the migratory birds at night landing in Dow's Lake uh, is unknown to me. The bird studies probably haven't been carried out about it. The wind being around Dow's Lake is going to be a built-up area. It's already showing that it's a very favorite area to, to build tall buildings around, and it makes sense that's going to be a huge impact in the future, or you're going to have to curtail the height of buildings to have helicopters coming by. And then you've got the risk to the crew of landing on an elevated helipad and of other things like fireworks and lasers that are a safety threat to the crew and, and operations of aviation. So just like, as you're saying, every tower that continues to go up in this area that's going to affect the ability to land safely? Absolutely. The, the wind aspects and the height, and it becomes an obstacle. 
So now you have to navigate safe distance in all directions and a safe height above these obstacles. So you're going to have to do a higher approach at a steeper angle and come into the helipad, and that's not a preferred way to do it. You don't want to do a, a, a long high down to a helipad. And then when you get to those types of higher approaches into a helipad, the, like a higher degree of, of uh, descent, then you also have the risk that the cloud base is at a, you're up higher at the start, so your cloud base has to be higher. So it's going to limit, possibly limit the availability for them to do a safe approach. They say, well, we need a ceiling, Call it the cloud base is called a ceiling. We may need a ceiling of 2,500 feet for this approach, but if you have it, say, at the existing location, it might be at 2,000 feet because you have a longer run over an unbuilt area with no obstacles below you, like at the experimental farm or uh, at the Tunney's Pasture, you would probably have a longer run down the Ottawa River over the, over the dam. Uh, Terry, is there anything else you'd like to say? Any final words? Just that I'd, uh, you know, we, I'm hoping that these things have been gone through. I have not found anything about it, and I'm trying to find out more, but it seems like there's just a, a basic plan and a lot of money going into the design, but I haven't seen any studies on these things, and I think they have to be considered for every, every uh, location that they have. And then probably they do consider the pushback that's happening about the loss of trees and the, the traffic. And we've seen how choking off downtown Toronto's Hospital Road, call it Hospital Road, but it's the hospital district, how that is a big concern in Toronto. Are you know, we limiting ourselves here as well by our designs to, to risks of a natural disaster might happen on one of the roads. That could be a factor as well. So those are all things that I think have to be explored, but I just didn't see anything on the helicopter side. And uh, I think it's a big consideration when you're building a major hospital like that for the next, say, 100 years. Well, thank you for taking the time to speak with me, Terry. Okay, thank you. Emma Williams is our science editor. She joins me now. Hey, Emma. Hi, Damien. How are you? I'm well, thank you. And what's new in science this week? So this week, I interviewed a researcher from the University of Ottawa named Matthew Pimenter, and we discussed his research on naked mole rats and how they're able to survive in hypoxic environments. Oh, wow. And what is a hypoxic environment? So a hypoxic environment is essentially an environment which has uh, a decrease in oxygen availability. So when mole rats burrow under the ground, they, they tend to create these hypoxic environments because they're using up the oxygen that's underground. Oh, wow. Cool. I can't wait to hear it. (laughs) Enjoy. So just getting right into it. Why did you use mole rats for your study? What is so unique about them? 
Well, so naked morats are, are unique in a lot of different ways. Um, they, there's a lot of people that study them for really interesting reasons. They're eusocial, they're very tolerant to cancer. They have excellent aging uh, characteristics and lifespan, but we're interested in their hypoxia tolerance. So I've always studied hypoxia and how animals tolerate and, and live in hypoxic environments. And naked morons are probably the most hypoxia tolerant mammal species that I've seen. And so they're a good model to explore how animals have evolved to live in a hypoxic environment. So, so naked morons, so they're eusocial species. So they have a lot of animals within a single colony. And within their nest chamber, they all sleep in a giant pile, basically. So there can be hundreds of animals within a, a sealed chamber, and they're, they're underground. So there's very poor gas diffusion through the soil. And so when you have a lot of animals in a small space, they're, of course, breathing, they're using up the oxygen. And it's thought that they create a hypoxic environment for themselves within their nest chamber, and also hypercapnic, which is high CO2. And then, of course, they leave their nest. They have long tunnel systems out of their nest chamber that they connect into their burrows. And so presumably, they're in a relatively normoxic environment outside of that so it's they they unlike animals that live in a noxic environments and need water for example they're they're in and out of a hypoxic environment so it's an intermittently hypoxic stress which is pretty cool so i'm wondering how you were how this how mole rats tie into your study how you were able to conduct your study um so <clears throat> we were interested in so, well the, the main way that animals, the, the most hypoxia tolerant species survive in hypoxia or reduce oxygen is by reducing their metabolic rate. So we use oxygen at the mitochondrial level to generate aerobic energy. So to make the ATP that our cells need. And when we don't have enough oxygen, our cells can't do that. And so you can either try to turn up anaerobic metabolic pathways, which is hard to do, or you can turn down your metabolic demand. And in a small rodent, like a naked mole rat, Thermal, thermal regulation or thermogenesis is one of the most energetically expensive processes. And so naked mole rats are, of course, naked. They don't have any fur. And so they have a really hard time maintaining their body temperature. And so we had done some earlier studies looking at whether or not what they do with their body temperature, essentially in hypoxia, do they try to maintain it? Do they try to defend their body temperature or do they let it decrease? And, and we had found that they do decrease their body temperature in hypoxia. And so we were trying to understand the mechanism that explained that. Do you mind just explaining what anaerobic pathways are? No, well, anaerobic metabolism is glycolysis. So it's okay. it, anaerobic just means without oxygen. Okay. So there are there are some bacteria and things like that that survive without oxygen and, and produce energy in that way. So we can do that as well. But when we when we use anaerobic metabolism, specifically glycolysis, we produce a lot of lactic acid. And so we build up acid levels in our body. So your muscles do this. When you exercise, okay, okay. Um, they become anaerobic, right? And, and that's why you, you'll, um, like if you if you get a lot of really intense exercise, the next day your muscles really hurt because mm -hmm. you get a lactic acid buildup and that's the byproduct of anaerobic metabolism. Okay. And your body has to then oxidize that the next day. Okay. So it, it, it has that sort of, that, that acidic buildup effect um, that isn't, so it doesn't, it's not a good long-term strategy for animals that are in hypoxia for a long period of time. Okay. So when you say they use anaerobic pathways, I'm not sure I understood. They're using oxygen to produce energy or there's other things going on there? No. So, so they, so in, in normal conditions, we all use aerobic metabolism, which is primarily mitochondrial metabolism called oxidative phosphorylation. Um, glycolysis can proceed without oxygen uh, in an anaerobic metabolic pathway. And as I say, we all use that in exercise in muscle cells and, and things like that. 
So when an animal is in hypoxia, they can't make, basically oxidative phosphorylation generates about 10 times as much energy as anaerobic metabolism. So if you have oxygen, you're way, way more efficient at producing energy than you are if you're not. And so when you're, when you're in a situation where you don't have oxygen available, you can either really turn up that anaerobic pathway, but in that case, you build up a ton of lactic acid, or you can turn down your overall metabolic demand, right? So you can turn down, you can think of it as a house, right? If, if you, um, you can ramp up the furnace really high and then you have to pay a really expensive cost for it. Um, or you can make the house less leaky or, or reduce the energy demand in the house itself. And that way, you know, you, you save energy basically as opposed to expending it in a different way. Um, and then you mentioned a mechanism. Yeah. So in, in small rodents, there's something called brown fat. And uh, brown fat is where there are specialized mitochondria that have a, a protein in them called uncoupling protein one. So essentially what brown fat does is I mentioned oxidative phosphorylation. So in the process of oxidative phosphorylation, basically the, uh, the electron transport chain in, in mitochondria pump protons across the mitochondrial membrane, and they essentially build up this proton motor force, which is potential energy. Okay. So you can think of this as like a, a sump pump, you know, it's pumping, you know, to, to an elevated level, this level this this protein gradient or proton gradient. And then the ATP synthase uses that to phosphorylate ADP into ATP. So this is the mechanism that our cells use to make ATP. Uncoupling protein essentially puts a bunch of holes in that membrane that lets, lets the, the protons or the hydrogen ions just flow back across it without generating ATP. Now, as the mitochondria works, it generates a little bit of heat. And so essentially by uncoupling the, the hydrogen gradient from ATP production, you get this futile cycle where the, the mitochondria are just constantly pumping protons and then it's leaking back across the membrane, constantly pumping protons and leaking back across the membrane. And it generates some heat as it does that. And so these fat cells by themselves generate heat and it's called non-shivering thermogenesis. So when you are an eye cold, we'll shiver, right? Our muscles will twitch and that helps to generate heat. This is just a, a, a function within these fat cells. It just generates heat like a little furnace by themselves. And so it uses a lot of energy to generate heat, but doesn't require muscular function, essentially. In small rodents, they have these patches of brown fat, usually between their shoulder blades, but also other areas on their body. And when they need to thermoregulate or produce heat, they turn these, these proteins on and they generate lots of heat in those regions. And that's how they, they heat up their body without shivering, muscle shivering. And humans don't have very much brown fat. Babies have a little bit. And this is actually something that's really popular as a weight loss theory, that if we could find a way to reduce the amount of, increase the amount of brown fat in humans or turn it on, then we could use a lot of energy without exercising, right? Yeah. And so we could, we could burn fat without, without actually doing anything. And so it's a target for weight loss strategies. That would so interesting. it would be neat, right? You can see the market <laughs> for that. Yeah. Um, so for, with naked mole rats, what we found is that they, they do express this protein in their brown fat, but when they're, they're in hypoxia, the protein is very quickly taken off the membrane. So within an hour, this protein is downregulated very rapidly off their, their brown fat membranes. And, and that, cor that correlates with a decrease in heat production in their interscapular region between their, and their shoulder blades. And that's really interesting because in mice, it takes three or four days for those proteins to be cycled out of the membrane. So naked moras live in a fairly warm environment. So they're, they're uh, found in Eastern Africa underground. The burrow temperature ranges from about 25 Celsius to about 45 degrees Celsius. So it's a pretty warm environment. And their, their thermal neutral zone, which is the, the temperature range across which they don't try to thermal regulate, is about 31 degrees. 
So if you put them below 31 degrees, they turn the system on and they try to heat up their body. And if you put them above 31 degrees, they turn it off and they're fine because their body temperature is already where they're comfortable. So this is a way to let them save energy, but within an environment that they can still, you know, they're still warm enough that they don't have to worry about it too much. So that was, those, those were your findings then? Was that, that's what they did? That was the primary mechanism. Um, we also found, so we we had been to South Africa a couple of years before, and we had a grant from National Geographic to go there and, and study a bunch of cousin species of naked morats. So there's a lot of different species that live this underground lifestyle in Eastern Africa, but they're all furry. So naked morats are the only naked mole rat, and they have different degrees of, of sociality. So naked mole rats live in these colony groups of up to a few hundred some of the species live by themselves or only live with the conspecific during the mating period. And some live in colony groups of 5, 10, 30, 30 animals, something like that. And what we found was that in, in other social species, that UCP, that this protein also decreased with hypoxia quite quickly, whereas in a solitary species, it didn't. And this suggests that the ability to turn off UCP1 so fast and so much faster than mice can may have evolved preferentially in these social species. To, to allow them to do this. And this may be because they can huddle for warmth or it may be because they live in more hypoxic burrows because there's more animals in a burrow and they're more likely to be exposed to hypoxia. Whereas a single animal living underground by itself wouldn't necessarily create a very hypoxic environment. What do you see? I You kind of touched on it, but what do you see in terms of future applications? Where do you see this going or being used? Yeah. So, well, there's a, there's a few different angles. I mean, we're mostly interested in how animals have survived the, or, you know, evolved to survive in hypoxia. So mm-hmm. yeah, hypoxia is a central component of a whole lot of human diseases. So chronic pulmonary disorders, heart attack, stroke, anemia. These are just a few examples of areas where you have some degree of hypoxemia or through the whole body or tissue hypoxia or, or ischemia in specific tissue regions. So most, most research in these areas, people use mice, right? Which is a very reactive approach because they're hypoxia intolerant. You give them hypoxia, they suffer, or you know, something goes wrong, their cells die or whatever. You say, oh, well, what's gone wrong, right? The same, same thing happens in humans. But what we want to do is take a more proactive approach and see, okay, well, how has nature solved the problem of hypoxia tolerance? So we look at animals that are, have evolved to live in these environments and, and figure out how they've done that. And by, by studying different systems in the body, we study the brain and the heart and, and a whole bunch of different areas as well. We try to understand what the molecular and, and physiological uh, adaptations they have that allow them to live in these environments as a way to inform our, our understanding of, of how a mammal can survive with, a, with low oxygen, what they can do to do it and what makes sense. So there's, there's a potential to inform therapeutic treatments for diseases and pathologies related to, to hypoxia. There's the evolutionary question of, of where these hypoxic adaptations are coming from and what's driven them. So there's, a, I think, significant interest there. And then there's just the, the, the physiology, basic research interest of, you know, how does this animal do this? How is uncoupling protein being regulated, you know, in a matter of hours versus several days in, in most species that we understand what's, what's the mechanism that enables this and, and whatnot. So there's a, there's a lot of uh, sort of future links, I think, to tag onto this. Well, thank you. My pleasure. Here with the latest of what's happening with the GGs is the Fulcrum Sports Editor, Jasmine McKnight. 
can we talk about Gigi's basketball? Because, oh my god, was it exciting to see them on the court again. The women's team started things off at 5 p.m. After losing to Queens the night before, it was a bit of a revenge match. And you could tell the team came out with absolute fire, taking a 7-0 lead early in the opening quarter. Queens wasn't going to let it be that easy, though. And soon enough, the game turned into a back-and-forth game between the OUA powerhouses. Not surprising, the game was decided by two points. The GGs redeemed themselves with a 69-67 win. But the team was celebrating more than just a win on Saturday night. The team was also celebrating Bridget Lefebvre-Conquou, who accomplished huge milestones over the weekend and became the third player in program history to score 1,000 points and secure 500 rebounds. Yeah, okay, so first thing, obviously yesterday was not the desired outcome, so kind of what was different about tonight? Um, tonight, the fact that we're home again in the last home game was our only home game in the season against York, our first game. I think the girls were excited to be back, and especially in front of the crown. That made a huge difference. We felt the atmosphere. We felt the support. Um, and also, we want, we really wanted to bounce back from yesterday. For sure. And just kind of what can you say about Bridget's accomplishments? This Bridget, I've known Bridget for many, many years. I've coached her Sejep, and I am so proud of her, but so not surprised. Like, she deserves it. She puts everything her heart, her mind, everything into what she does, and she just 100% deserve it. Okay, first off, congratulations on all the accomplishments today. Thank you. Um, just based off of yesterday's result, like, how did? What was your mindset going into this game? I revenge. I just wanted to fight back and get the win. We deserved it, and we knew we could beat this team, so we did. Yeah. What did you do differently? Um, I think it was just like our mindset. We were just more like intense. We wanted to grab more rebounds. We wanted to fight everything, get more steals. So, and we got it. Yeah, for sure. And then last thing for me, just what does it feel like to be playing back in this gym again? Finally, it feels great. I was I was missing it, missing my, my people seeing me play, and missing mostly playing with my teammates because they're incredible people. So I'm just really happy to be back. Lefebvre Conquo made history, but the night did not end there. The 7-0 Gigi's men's basketball team took the court next, looking to close out against Queens once more. And that they did. But not without giving everyone in the building a weird mix of excitement and anxiety by sending the game into overtime. What a game to be played back at home in front of an audience for the first time in months. It was a huge block by Gage Sabian in the last half a second of play that secured the 72-70 win over the Gales. Next, the GGs are taking on Carlton, who are sure to be their toughest opponents yet, also holding undefeated records. Raven's Nest, Friday night in what is technically the Capital Hoops classic. Unfortunately, out of caution, Carlton will not be welcoming spectators to the game. But don't worry, I'll make sure I come back with all the results. So, I do have more good news. The men's hockey team has released the rest of their regular season schedule, and we'll get to see them back in action against UQTR on Saturday at 5pm. And we can't forget about the main event this past weekend. The Rams are the Super Bowl 56 champions, and I could not be happier for Sean McVay, Matt Stafford, and every guy on that team who is so wildly deserving of a ring. 
and for the Bengals fans. Joe Burrow and Jamar Chase have plenty of years ahead of them, but it's nice that they could shine some light on Cincinnati and give us such an exciting bowl game. Not to mention, that halftime show had to be one of the best. So, to my fellow G's, have a wonderful reading week, and everyone else, stay hydrated. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you to everyone involved in this week's show. From Newfoundland to Saskatchewan, bringing you news from around the world, we have Gabrielle Musichka. Gotta give a very special shout out this week to Oreo, uh, who kindly let Shaley Shaw read headlines for a little bit this week. Emma Williams hates Mondays and loves lasagna. And Jasmine McKnight is going to be on TSN one day. But remember, you heard her here first. Music and sound design by Cameron Rankin. You've been listening to the Fulcrum Radio Show. I'm your host, Damian Piper. Well, we're not going to have a regular show over the next couple weeks. It's a reading week thing in college and academia land. Uh, So uh, we are going to release some conversations that Emma and I have both had uh, with different community groups and stuff that should be a part of the show and probably should have been released by now. But there'll be a chance to go a little bit deeper on a couple of different issues so uh, you can look forward to that we'll be back periodically over the next two weeks but we'll return the week of March 11th with uh, regular programming as well in the meantime be safe out there and as Jasmine always says stay hydrated <laughs>